Back to Truth and Rhythm. I'm your host, Scott, Dr. GX Goldfine, and we're here again with Arnell Carmichael, singer-guitarist from radio, looking to get radio back in a heavy rotation and turning it on again once again with Mr. Arnell Carmichael. Welcome back. Hi, how are you guys? How's everybody doing? <laughs> All right. Glad to have you back, Arnell. So, um, when we finished last time, uh, we pretty much uh, wrapped up the first record, and um, that was fun. So we're going to move on and talk about Rock On, which was the second right. one. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I think probably my favorite radio album, um, just because it, you guys really um, caught fire, you know, and you really, I think, got comfortable in what you were doing and kind of took it even to another level, in my opinion. So... Can you talk about um, the process of creating that record and what you remember about it? Yeah, um, <clears throat> just as you say, yeah, I think the maturity did happen. Um, Ray, as a writer, um, and then now there were a lot of other uh, areas that, that kind of happened with that, and that was the studio American was now a brick and mortar uh, building, uh, which was on Lancashire in North Hollywood. I'm now officially moving my family back uh, from Detroit because I was going back and forth a lot, even though I had maintained that like in a, a condo in, in uh, that area. Uh, well, no, I was actually in, I was in uh, the Hollywood area. West, uh, East, I don't know. Anyway, I know I was in Hollywood and we, as a family, we were moving closer to where the records were being recorded. That apartment was on Tahunga, which is around the block from the building. So how that altered with the sound was, is everybody was uh, kind of together better. You know, we had just came off a tour. Ray was writing a lot of songs, which I thought was really interesting. He used to carry around a micro cassette, and I got to do this in front of people. He used to always be talking on this micro cassette, and I was like, "What the heck is he doing?" You know. So then he told me, he's like, "Yeah, well, I got the music, and I'm recording it." Even when I first met him, uh, he would call me on the phone, which was one of the biggest things that I ever seen a young person do, or any writer for that matter. He would call me and kind of get the keys and sing this and do that on the phone. So by the time we get off the second tour, my son is born, all of that's going on. He had a lot of the songs that he wanted, uh, the tracks, which was, I, I thought was pretty amazing because again, I was still uh, getting through this and learning and I felt, okay, the other part that for me, I felt like, you know what, this is a, uh, a graduation or coming out where I don't have so much competition because Jerry Knight at that point, which is would be the controversy of Rock On, is that he's no longer coming around. Uh, we had lost another friend, Vincent Bonham, who was one of the uh, original starting members for that uh, radio album, the first one. Charles Fearing, uh, my brother, uh, Darren Carmichael, who wasn't, who hadn't officially changed his name to London Carmichael yet, uh, 
uh, who stuck around for some of the first recording, but was really used as the drummer uh, on uh, the second one. So he became a member. And um, that was the kind of like the setting. And then, of course, a, a Mary Can being torn down as a dentist office was being uh, set up, uh, one room studio. Uh, it was very interesting that period because I actually saw a studio being built. Steve Hallquist uh, came aboard, which is a, a very, very excellent uh, engineer. He's the master engineer at now because he's done so much for Disney since then, where he's had like 25, 30 uh, young engineers under him. He was there. I think his father, he told me, uh, his father worked for Yuri, which was a, um, a, a preamp company that designed a, a certain kind of preamp equipment. Ray had all these slew of connections. Uh, Reggie, uh, Reggie Dozier, as an engineer, uh, was there a lot. And uh, Paul Jackson, uh, all of these people and more. I'm, I'm not even naming like one third of them, but it was so many people that um, it was the place to be. Mary Can Studio was the place to be. Was well, he also Norma Jean, Norma Jean Bell? Excuse me, what'd you say? I had a big, big beat there. Norma Jean Bell also, right? Yeah, yeah. That, and, that, and you know, it's interesting that you said that because even at a point of uh, this interview we're doing, right, I, I thought to myself, what would have been one of the highlights? Well, Norma Jean Bell playing on Your Need of Love <clears throat> was a highlight for me because before uh, radio, um, the Carmichael movement, she used to be the musical director for our band. Because wow. she left us to go play with Stevie Wonder and Frank Zappa. Hmm. So when I got there, now I'm staying there because before I was, you know, migrating there. But anyway, it was just awesome, you know. So, yeah, you're right, Norma Jean Bell. That's that's a very good call, marking, you know. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think that's uh, Rock On has more than one way to love a woman on it. Yeah, I'll just uh, uh, I'll just get yeah, it. I, I should know the songs. But... A few of those tracks. Um, so Rock On had what you waited for. It had uh, hot yeah. stuff. It had yeah. Rock On. It had uh, when you're in need of love, um, and of course you can't change that. And uh, this is uh, was the cover picture. Oh, oh yeah, I, I do know the cover picture. It's like it never goes away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you still trying to live that down or something? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so funny, so funny. But yeah, I think um, uh, it, it just was such an energetic album in terms of the feeling for me uh, was I didn't have the competition of Jerry Knight <laughs> and trying to wonder what I was going to sing on. It basically was a, was Ray and myself, you know, uh, going through a lot of the project. And I, on, on all of the projects, I stayed up with him. When you say in the other part one where you say, well, you know, uh, I go on to work with him on Sex and a Single Girl. Uh, I, I, I used to stay up with him many, many hours from, we'd get to the studio at maybe, and wouldn't go home till eight o'clock the next morning, even working on Ghostbusters, um, 
he called me at three of two two or three in the morning to come do a part and i was like really on a, on another song and i knew i was not you know i knew that radio wasn't the group at that time but the group that helped him out on that record so um, rock on. a lot of stories about rock on yeah so well and you guys went on an amazing tour as part of that too and i want to talk about that too so I was actually at that tour. I think we talked off air about it. Um, opening uh, for Bootsy, the the show I saw was at the LA Forum, mind blowing show by Bootsy, um, and it was packed. I mean, seventeen thousand sold out, and Enchantment opened. You guys, I think Enchantment opened. Then you guys, and I was also uh, talking to uh, Tom Vickers recently. I don't know if you know him from the P Funk Empire back then. And uh, he told he was talking about that he went with uh, the tour to the UK or Europe, and so you guys also went overseas. So yeah, talk we a did bit about we that. Did. Well, the UK was the interesting part of it because um, out that uh, my father was a major major artist. Now I know we're talking about radio, but I have to go because we were at Hammersmith Odeon and. Um, well, actually, I think that I guess it had to be with Bootsy because I'm not sure if it's Rick James or Bootsy, but I know on that show we opened and um, Heat Wave came on second, and then I think Bootsy came on third. In the process, Ray tells you know, like you're there, you're backstage, you're on the stage, and power went out, and we still had to perform uh, two songs. In acapella, Vincent talks about it all the time because he was still at that time uh, on that date. So now it was early. That was early. The first time we went to England, uh, it was actually with uh, we 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 switched over to the Rick James thing. But again, what what goes down in all of this is that we were very, it was a major event for me because my father I discovered his records were bigger in Birmingham, England. Then Motown. So that was a trip. I was like, really? So yeah, that uh, part of it uh, was special in that light. And I remember how good Heat Wave was. Because when we first broke out with the you know, record on Arista, um Heat Wave was a brand new artist. You know, just like we were. And boy, oh boy, I, I thought, man, that's a really great group, you know. They were very, then our, they're very energetic on stage. Yeah, they were. And they, and they had a very good um, making records, just like Ray did. So, so it was, you know, being in England at that time, watching Johnny uh, Wilder throw his uh, microphone around, you know, like I think Frank James Brown or somebody used to do this. But anyway, he he did this like an amazing microphone trick and, uh, our our thing was just singing and having fun on the stage, and a lot of people in England can't forget that. They I think that the firewall came down because uh, the staging there and curtain that would come down on the stage. So if the building caught on fire, it wouldn't go into the audience or whatever. So you know uh, that actually came down on our show. <laughs> oh, it was funny, pretty funny, but it's very very. Um, that it also, also here's another part of it what no one would know. That was where Jerry Knight uh, would get together. Larry didn't do it, 
in mutiny. And Jerry, I'm sorry, but I'm telling the truth. Uh, I was uh, not before we went on the tour, I was in Detroit. So I flew from Detroit to England. And by the time I got there and settled in, uh, the talk had started that Jerry was uh, dating or courting or however you want to look at it, the, the president of Arista in, in England. So he was meeting all these people because they were session musicians. You know, he had played with uh, Bill Withers. And, so he just felt that this wasn't enough. Whatever was being offered was not enough. And that was it was his time to make his move. And so I got a call. Florin Ray to find out which direction I was going to go in signing. And uh, I said, I, I'm not worried about this. If you guys agree, or it seems to be fairly decent. I didn't, I didn't get a lawyer because I, I knew from my father's dealings, like the start of a deal. I even told Russ, I said, the start of a deal. This is the start of a deal. So it's a, it's a decent start. You know, I, I can, you know, make a living from that. And um, we went on to do that that stuff. Uh, England, it's very interesting because there's so much attached to that. Uh, what else? It was something great. It was something even bigger that I'm missing now when I think about it. So we had the records being made and um, that England trip I'm talking about, which is more important than the other ones, was is, um, everybody was growing. That would that trip made the maturity of the next record for sure. I I say that for sure. What, what yeah. was your um, encounters with Bootsy like? My my encounters with Bootsy, I, you know, um, what a lot of people don't know is is that I was at the time a more of an introvert. I would become more uh, uh, extrovert when we were performing. So I didn't really hang out with a lot of people. And I know it was about that tour that was even more special. And I missed it. Was they met Bob Marley that on that tour, on that, on those dates going over England. Bootsy tour, um, the highlight for me of, of just the Bootsy family of musicians was uh, Mudbone and, and uh, Catfish was who everybody talked about. Uh, for Bootsy, he was being a star, and I I heard his articles and I heard uh, some of his interviews uh, long since all of that, and he said something that I thought was very interesting. And he said, "Man, I was just trying to be the guy running it. I didn't want to know about this, and I didn't want to do all of that. I didn't want to do the business. I just wanted to be an artist, you know. Because now, when you're the leader of it, the bills and everything come to you, and you have to do it all in interviews." So when I saw his interview and he said that I could understand it because it was so much. Like there's a video of a radio and all of us on stage with Bootsy and it had to be at least 25, 30 people. I always thought that was crazy, you know, on the stage. Uh, even as we came in on uh, our set, we would come back in and when he goes, who's gonna tear this mother down and all of us, yeah, could be on the stage shouting out Bootsy, Bootsy to the crowd. Bootsy was a very, very energetic artist to start his career. Uh, to you know, of course not start, but I, I say the star of Bootsy because I didn't even know who Bootsy was. I'll be honest. My background was not into that kind of funk, but to see it was like, oh my God, we are really doing something, you know. 
Well, and they were um, so they were so tight. Yeah, it was a very very good band for, for what they did. It was very very good. I think Catfish had a lot to do with it too, because you know those guys playing with James Brown, me and Vincent Bonham, uh, I've talked to him quite a lot. Here's what we thought and think, and I can say it: Bootsy would be the start of funk, of the real funk that everybody deals with, and he might be the longest living artist of that because of how long where he started it. Because he, he comes before a slide when you deal with James Brown, and he was with James Brown, Bootsy was. So he goes through maybe 30, 40, 50, maybe 50 years of funk. Okay. You're not gonna, I, don't, I know George Clinton wants to say that, but he, when Bootsy came to George Clinton, he brung them alive. They were not, they were not funking. <laughs> he, he taught George the one. Yeah, he did. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, my experience with that phrase, uh, the one, would be a drummer from Energy. His name is, uh, I have to give him credit, Eric Wallace. I'll never forget I was in California, and we all used to stay close because we all love each other. And he said, Arnell, don't you know that one is where you put it? And I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, there's four beats in a phrase. And whatever you emphasize, whether it's four or whether it's three or whether it's two, it is and will be forever the one. <laughs> so I didn't know because I wasn't really a musician. I I had taken classes, but when I when I when I heard that, it stuck with me to this day of the phrasing of what happens with music. You know, Michael Henderson's uh, uh, ideas. Funk is the space. You know, in between a beat like the silence, and after you hit it, and then you know, here is this emphasis of uh, music. So. Everybody has a, a description, but for sure, absolutely, Scott, I will agree with you that uh, Bootsy Collins taught George Clinton funk, the one. He taught him how to be on the one. I got I got two questions right now for you about Ray at that point. Mm -hmm. um, one, how did he feel about his singing when he got – was he a little um, – How did I feel about what? How, how did Ray – at that point, Ray Parker feel about his his singing. Was he still a little shy about it and trying to get his footing? As a gonna, people are going to see this. I don't mean to interrupt, but I have to say this because I know what you're saying now. Um, I was instrumental in telling him, and many of his friends were, of singing. I thought when it was him and I that you know this will be good for him, and of course, great for me because I'm a better singer. But uh, Ray was shy and thought that he may lose, you know, I guess, uh, a certain amount of it. But he was really going after who he wanted to be. You know, and I didn't think I'd be here this long. So I was like, you know what, it's his, it's his deal. He, did, he does a lot of the work for it. I mean, we're all uh, accompanying what he's doing, so he should sing. So he brought a song to me uh, that I sang all the way through. And I I love the I love the version of it. I was so excited. And um that song was A Woman Needs Love. And I actually sang that all the way through. But he had written that song um uh, with some of his lady friends who, you know, and so he began this the, the mark of really singing a song. It was one a woman needs love. And that's now four albums later from the start where he had already been singing, but that has been for a lot of fans, which is to this day why I still 
get calls and interviews and everybody wants to ask me all kind of a mountains of questions. And I would actually have to say that I, I was still an encourager of him singing too. Like he should sing. It's his, he writes the songs. He's, he's doing the project. He owned the studio. I mean, what more can you say? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. And then um, also um, just going back a, a bit to the Bootsy thing, you know, the sound of radio at that point, there's a lot of like um, rubbery kind of popping kind of sound in the bass and the rhythm that to me reminds me a little bit of some of what Bootsy did. Do you think there was any influence as part of that tour that carried over into some of the funk element of, of radio? Well, I, I want to say this. Where we all, <clears throat> excuse me, where we all came from. And um, it's a very interesting because I saw George Clinton before I even dealt with Ray Parkway Radio. It had a group called, uh, uh, what is the name of that stupid group? Uh, excuse me, George, but I had to say that because it's just for my health thought. Um, you had a record, I just want to testify. We used to do that record. The Parliament. Record so much as Parliament. So we used to do that record so much that I was like way into before he got, got with Bootsy. But that we are all dealing with was feeling which I would have to attach to funk even before I knew what the one was. By the time we Bootsy or that, um, we pretty much understood what to do with music. Hey, we're back. We had a bit of a technical issue on a different, better device and back to Arnell. Yeah, the influence of uh, Bootsy in terms of their brand of funk and what Ray Parker was doing, to me, my opinion, as I said, uh, we were at that point of um, me knowing uh, that we sang uh, as a cover. I just want to testify by the Funkadelics. Well, as it goes on, we were around a lot of musicians and they used to play everything. So the sophistication between the two was quite different and by the time I got to uh, the Bootsy camp, I had a better understanding of what funk would feel like. Ray probably knew what it was and probably, in his mind, you know, chose the uh, particular grooves because, you know, uh, his writing uh, was very close and similar to a lot of different artists. If you listen to our records, they're um, so mimicky of artists but then with such a great blend to make us uh achieve popularity no samplers at the time so you you become uh a strong sense of who you are because you know we didn't have samplers and all of that so uh i, I can remember something that happened that showed the influence on on charles fearing who was a guitar player and uh radio with uh, the Bee Gees. He came with an intro of one of Ray's songs, More Than One Way to Love a Woman, and it had this Bee Gees feel to it in the beginning. And I said, oh, here we go with this Bee Gees sound, <laughs> you know, because I was not really into the Bee Gees as much as I should have been. But anyway, uh, respect to the guys in the Funkadelic and Bootsy uh, clan. 
uh, we were just more on a popular uh, trend of music to me. Bootsy uh, and George with this cutting edge sound of theirs that would then make them who they are. What I remember very well was is that a radio coming to a tour with Bootsy, we bring a whole lot of different people they never expected to come. You know, and as a new group, I knew that right away because even when we were with Frankie Beverly, when we uh, did some stuff with Frankie Beverly, uh, we were on the stage performing and all, we did the first album and by the time we got through uh, like seven songs, the eighth or ninth song was Jack and Jill. And the crowd didn't know who we were. But by the time we got to the end of the show and the Jack and Jill played, it was an amazing attraction. And it started going all over the country because the records, every record, and I mean every record, was played on that first album. Second album had a lot too, but not like the first one. The first one was just was in an incredible hodgepodge of just songs everywhere. You know, and so that's what we brung to some of the uh, funk environment was, I, I guess I should say we bring a lot of white people because they liked it. They liked us a lot, you know, at the time in the 70s. You, get, you, guys, had, you guys had more crossover, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 um, at the time, funk was, was growing. That's what we were talking about in terms of how it would mature. Well, you know, all of it, they just helped Ray out, you know, helped us out in terms of allowing us to be on their, their uh, tours. And we did learn and used it where we could. What, what was it like, uh, Arnell? I'm sure you made a lot of TV appearances at that point because you had had some hits. And uh, what was it like for you? And especially saying you're kind of an introvert doing the TV stuff. <laughs> well, that's an interesting story because there is one. <laughs> Dinosaur Show. There was a there was a uh, opportunity, of course, to rape and radio or radio at the time to be on a dinosaur show. So, of course, because I'm singing uh, and Jerry uh, was, if I remember, I, I don't think he was there. But anyway, so we're doing Jack and Jill and um, Dinosaur herself came up to me because of my dancing and my singing. She was like, hi, Ray, how are you? <laughs> And so uh, the management stopped everything. And I was, I was, I was like, no, I'm not Ray, but how are you doing? You know? And so they were like, what? And she was shocked. She was like, you're not Ray, but you're so good. And, you know, that never made the tape. They actually redid the whole thing because of that. So uh, I experienced that a lot. You know, we did a lot of interviews and I just kind of, after that, I started realizing like, you know, what was going on and I kind of started keeping to myself, you know, but, so anyway, yeah, but Dinah uh, Shore Show, that was a great show, and that would be a, a really unique experience. Yeah, I'd like to see that clip somewhere. That should be on YouTube. Yeah, it should be. It's not, though, but yeah. Um, so I think you mentioned uh, uh, Cavallo and Ruffalo. Were, those guys were... Cavallo, uh, Ruffalo. Yeah. yeah, so they I know they also revolved with Prince. Did, did you ever have oh, yeah. an occasion to meet Prince because of yeah. that? All, all very, very great questions. And, and I almost want to tell you, like, this stuff could go on and on because it's so much stuff. Uh, we were in um, New York, 
Ray got a call that his managers was going to meet him on uh, tour and they wanted him to stop in Minneapolis. And they actually went to see Prince. They actually brought Prince with uh, Ray in mind to produce some of the records. Oh. And uh, what, I, what I later found out from Ray was that Prince uh, liked the recording sound of radio, how it was recorded. And Ray, as a young 19-year-old man, had one of the only recording studios and that he wanted that sound. And Ray actually talked to Prince and they became friends. Uh, he says they were friends before then, but uh, I don't know because I, I didn't meet Prince until we got back to California. But we actually stopped by and Prince and Ray became friends and associates of recording from that date back then. And I think that was somewhere like in the Rock On process when Rock On was the record, because I, I didn't see him before then. And on that um, stable of artists for Caval and Ruffalo's managers also was Earth, Wind & Fire uh, and a lot of many, many other great artists. So we met so many people, especially we did No Nukes, uh, Jackson Brown, and did a lot, a lot, a lot of just popular stuff. Well, that makes sense because I had heard also that um, Maurice White was put forward to produce Prince's first album, and Prince wanted to do it himself. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is definitely correct because at the time, uh, Ray our, Ray beat Maurice White in building a studio. Maurice hadn't built his uh, I can't think of the name of it, but he hadn't built that one yet anyway. Uh, and the idea that uh, they shared was. The studio had to have at least six or seven layers because of the airplanes in LA flying over the, the buildings. And so he had his uh, building, I think it was a six, he had built a six story building, uh, Maurice did, uh, Arc Records. And Ray, of course, had Ray uh, had American studio. So we would see them a lot. We would see uh, Maurice, and Philip, and uh, Verdine a lot back and forth. and. So I would imagine that when Prince came around, all of these people were available to him. I even heard stories, which I don't know, but I, I, I would believe that Patrice Russian actually was one of the musicians who played on his first album. So, mm, yeah, I heard he we was all knew, a fan of hers. Yeah, we all knew he was coming though before it happened. Yeah. Well, wow, so this must have been not such a big deal to you because you were accustomed to the whole Detroit thing, rubbing all the elbows with all those guys. Well, and, that, and you're right, but that was one of the things that I had to deal with later on in life was that, you know, coming from a family where your father has a record company and you are pursuing your career based upon artists and people that you meet, that kind of made me a little little ahead or in knowledge. So I had a different perspective than most who already were trying to make the career happen. So you're right, I, I, I was kind of already at a point where I wanted what I wanted, but you couldn't really politically just blurt it out and say, hey, this is what I wanted, because you'd look at like you were cocky. And um, at the time, I was told that I was that, but I, I couldn't see it, you know, at the time. Yeah, it's kind of different. Let me ask you about another uh, executive, very famous one, Clive Davis. So, you know, he was the guy at Arista then. And, and I've talked to a lot of other artists who went to Arista, uh, black artists, you know, like Gil Scott Heron and um, 
um, a lot of them. They were trying to get in on that at that time, and it didn't always work out that well, you know, with what Clive envisioned and what the band envisioned. Um, so do you have any stories about Clive Davis? Yeah, I want to be careful, but I'll, I want to say this. Um, I only met him like twice, and it was respectful at the time. And because we were assigned to Ray's production, and Ray was the artist on Arista, uh, my pursuit should have been to let me get to know this guy, let me try to figure out if I could, you know, mature into my own deal, which I did get a chance to do before it all fell apart. But I, I pretty much didn't want to have anything to do with uh, Arista um, because I felt my identity was stolen. Uh, when I started reading articles and interviews where my name was no longer mentioned, but the songs Ray had written, and I knew that that, that was coming from the management and from uh, Ariston. So I, I, I didn't pursue that because I had other problems. And I still could look back to Clive Davis as we talk about him and say, that's a pretty smart guy because he uh, dealt with musicians, singers, and music in a whole totally different manner than uh, Barry Gordy or my father, uh, Mike Hanks, and many other, uh, Gamble and Huff and all of the many other artists. But he wasn't afraid of, of putting together a large enough strategy because, again, which a lot of people may not talk about, you know, we're now talking about the 70s. And we had just came out of the 60s, which had a lot of riots and all those things in it. So the opportunity that Clive had was different than what Barry Gordy would have. Because Barry Gordy, if, if he was making records and he was dealing with marketing campaigns, he would be coming from an urban perspective into an environment where Clive would be coming from an suburban effective market, but he just needed urban guys. Because Victor Givens, Richard Smith, I could tell you, I mean, I was so far into this and knew the promotion guys uh, that worked and helped Clive bring us, Jerry Griffin, all these people who worked to bring a black act that I was proud to be along with Ray, attached to Arista, and we actually would vocalize our opinions to Ray. Ray would then vocalize it to the management companies and take it back and it would hit Clive that the kind of marketing that radio should have. So, and even if you watch Unsung, uh, which the Ray Parker version, you will hear him say he didn't know what to do with the group. Ray, Ray's opinions and the opinions of others did affect him greatly by the time he got to Whitney Houston because Whitney Houston wasn't on the label yet. And so for Ray's records to have the marketing crew that it had, we were all, we were everywhere. And as a young guy, I mean, I'm older than Ray at the time, but still I view myself as being uh, fortunate and young to see something so massive. I mean, the biggest of that uh, campaign should be talked about in books. And I actually got one of my close friends now, Armando Rivera, who was a uh, program director in, in uh uh, R&B or whatever, you know, in the radio factor of music, he came to me and said, hey, your name, you, your information, radio, Arnell Carmichael, Ray Parker, Jerry Knight, and, you know, he was going crazy about 
it's in their information of radio stations you know so clive did a massive job I, if i can't say anything else great i will say that okay it makes sense you know uh what he did to to, to get into the market to be able to sell records on both sides of the fence arnell i'll say uh you know the first uh show we did um one of the viewers asked you know a question that i'm going to share with you <clears throat> and that was was there ever an opportunity or talk about uh, Ray maybe producing a record for you as doing sort of an outshoot of? of yeah, I have copies of that. I, there's so much that we probably have to do a fourth <laughs> part, whatever. But there, I mean, my 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 energy and what I wanted to do, there was an album at the time. You got to remember uh, for everybody who was asking that question. Um, that you had even more competition of other people who wanted a deal, who wanted to be a part of being on a lacquer record, 45, 33, whatever it was, the process. So uh, when I was talking to Ray about it, uh, there were me, Jerry Knight, and another young man named Randy Hall. So everybody's records was going to happen. Jerry didn't want to wait because he, he actually came back. Like he had left and was trying to come back into the fold. But it couldn't happen because now you got Randy Hall who put out such a great record, his first record, uh, I'm in Love with Jamie's Girl, just really just a uh, great record. You know, I actually did some background in engineering because I had learned from Steve on that record. But for me, uh, we had ran into uh, the guys from uh, the group, uh, I think Brian Fairweather and Martin Page were with uh, Jefferson Starship, I'm not sure, but uh they came we did all these records and it was another guy john lynn that there is audio that was that was created for me but i had uh at the time a personal life problem with my marriage and uh my stepfather was uh very sick and he was dying so my um goals were to push harder you know, because everybody wants more money. And I actually, it was the first time in my life that I actually said to Ray, I got to have this, I got to have that. But at the time, imagine all this is going on. So now you've got this, uh, the second enhancing of the studio because second room is being built. Uh, Jerry Knight coming, trying to come back. Randy Hall trying to get involved. Uh, me asking for a record and Ghostbusters just being pushed by CBS and uh Eris to, to to the top. So Ray's like being pulled to go where all these different places and it just wasn't in the cards. It just didn't happen. So I, I left and that was uh, a boost where I got from Ollie Brown where I was with the Daz Band. There's music with me having did some tracks with the Daz Band. Uh, then I had another project with uh, a Lionel Vinyl production company, uh, Joe Vitarelli, Joe Vitarelli and Edgy Lee, where we do, because I went out with Tina Marie and my brother, and mm. uh, when he was with QT Hush, and they were backing him, that I did a record with uh, Lionel Vinyl. And then the single would, would have been with me and Tina Marie, uh, which is there, there's a copy or part of it on A-string, uh, that uh, that would have happened. But again, my personal life was so, Turmoil. Yeah, I, and I don't want to hold any ill will against her because, you know, at the time we were young and uh, I didn't realize that I should have not got married, but <laughs> uh, 
uh, it was just one of those kind of things where it just wasn't in the cards. I at it, and trust me, because I was not this, it, uh, as everybody thought I was arrogant, but I was not this really blaringly arrogant person, and I didn't care. I was like, you know what? I ain't gonna worry about it. I gotta go do it my life. So I actually quit. To a lot of people that don't know, I stopped. Uh, I became uh, an executive vice president to a CD manufacturing plant. I'm going back farther after leaving Ray, I went to to school and got my uh, certified for I think ASCII uh, and Fortran or some other kind of language for writing software programs. And I I used to. It was hard for me to get to this one. Because I said I can't, I can't imagine all of this. I can't even tell you how it felt for two places because it was so much of me wanting to keep my family together that uh, I just left it. I had to actually just walk away. So Ray would still call me. Like I went ten years, maybe 10, 12 years before we even spoke, and he calls me up one day and he says, "You know what? I need you." And I said, "What y'all can?" He was like. You gotta come back and sing these songs. <laughs> I was like, no. He was like, yeah. Uh, and so we were uh, doing some dates over in Japan, and I saw Jerry again. This had to be like in the '90s or something. And uh, uh, two years after that, or not far after that, Jerry Knight died, and uh, it was it was like we really weird to to you know go through all of this, watch. I mean, Scott, I have watched all of these groups who were just beginners have their whole career. And I'm you know, behind some computer being a tech guy and uh, or with a CD manufacturing company, which is a part of Ricochet and all of that. So uh, to, to right now to be where I am is really cool to be able to tell you a lot. And for those who say, well, how come it, what happened? You know, I have people, I had a guy tell me and may not be best to say it, but he's going to be in I would have just ended my life. I was like, no, I have more to live for. Yeah. <laughs> Radio, music, Jack and Jill, you can't change that. There's so many stories that we don't even have time because it was a wonderful experience. Me and Ray are still real cool. I was just at his studio. He just built in his house and extension on. He's, he's still doing his thing. He's supposedly to make a new record, 1984, to pick up maybe where we all stopped at or something, you know, but. I'm now a jazz musician. I've been uh, working with, uh, before he passed away, uh, Alan Barnes of Blackbirds. We used to do a Blackbirds review version for him. Uh, and I knew all the guys anyway, but uh, and I had a chance to write a song on the Blackbirds last record before Alan Barnes uh, passed away. Uh, my, uh, used to call him and go, Alan, what would happen if I could play the guitar? And he, he was like, if you could play the guitar, man, you will never have nothing to worry about. You know, so me and him uh, got together and he taught me a lot more. I knew about the technical side of it and I knew about the playing side of it because the guy that I worked with was like this fabulous guitar player. So I had no problems in like re-entering, especially after Unsung. That unsung just caused more people to say, you know, where is this guy and what is he doing and what happened? And, you know, so I'm I'm pretty cool. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, mm. You know, and I've seen 
some of the uh, clips on YouTube, and I encourage uh, viewers to go check them out. Just mm -hmm. from you know the past couple of years, and you're playing some sweet guitar, and you're doing some jazzy stuff, and uh, it's cool. oh yeah. And uh, I especially liked um, the version. And I put up I put up everything raw too. No, whatever mistakes, and I'm doing it. <laughs> hey, that helps. That makes it real, man. Um, you know, yeah. I really liked. Um, I can't help it. The version you did of that. Oh, that. Now let me. You know, I gotta tell you this story because that that is a very interesting moment in my life. Uh, right before I started all of this uh, CD manufacturing and all of that, uh, and I, I I actually was graduating from the uh, school and got my software thing and uh, went and got this job working for medical automation and, and uh, I quit this job. <laughs> my boss was not doing what I thought was right. <laughs> and after having been with radio, I had learned to no, know I can't do this. So I go into his office and I say, you know what? I'm shipping all of my equipment from uh, California and my studio equipment. I'm out of here. So now I got a studio in the basement of where I live. And um, my mother, you, who uh, at the time when I wrote my first song, she would go, you, you got to write better songs. And I didn't understand. So I set up the studio in her house so that I would have, you know, just quiet and not anybody where I lived. And so anyway, so I come and I'm writing a song and I'm working on it and I'm in a relationship. So uh, I didn't know how to explain my emotion. And so I wrote, I can't help but say I'm sorry. And it sounded so close to a radio record. I was like, oh, this is going to be a smash. <laughs> And uh, and I didn't think it was a great record, and I played it for my mother before she died. And uh, she even she even said that was a really nice song. And I I did a lot of trying to push it and trying to get a lot of people to get into it, and uh, started opening uh, my own shows as Arnold Carmichael, you know, from radio blah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it wasn't the same. It's a harder road, and unless you're a younger guy who's not influenced like I was, and you have all these people trying to help you. You know, uh, when I did have a deal, the record companies were talking about hip hop. They were talking about, well, why should I give you 200,000 when I can give this young guy like 40,000 and he goes out and I make a million dollars. So that record uh, was a mark of me saying, I don't want to sound like this anymore. And I love that record. I said, I can't do the, the, the pop thing from where I am and try to get into the race. I like music enough because of my father's experience, my experience as a young artist. I've seen the mountaintop, as people would say. And so I, I picked jazz because of my stepfather. He would always, when we were younger, uh, which I didn't say, but here's another influence, he would play a lot of jazz. His father... Uh, owned El Casino, which was a lounge in Detroit, and they had a pool hall, and he used to go visit his friends who were playing with Count Basie, Sonny Stitt, and all these other guys, and was his friends, and uh, I was influenced. I used to sing, uh, chances are that I wear a silly grin, you know, so I used to Johnny do all Mathis. those kind of things. Yeah, Johnny Matheson met him too, uh, so I picked jazz. I said, you know, if I'm going to re-enter this world, this environment again, I'm going to do it as a different person. And that's what I'm doing now is jazz uh, songs and R&B and, you know, little R&B, not a lot, but enough that what is 
should be said is the radio show is where everybody can see me now. I created, and you know, Ray had given me permission to do this, and I just didn't do it because there are more things in life to music. Music is everywhere, and now it's getting more respect. It may not have as many record company executives, but it has enough that you can create your own career. So that's what I have now is the radio show. Ooh, I'm about to sneeze. <coughs> Arnold Carmichael is a jazz musician. I do a lot of club work. You know, so I'm really happy about that. Yeah, that's fantastic. So um, I've seen, you know, uh, especially lately, uh, some promotions coming out for that. And uh, you want to talk a little bit more about that, uh, what you're doing with with, with Arnold Carmichael and radio and, and uh, maybe well, again, people can come see you? Well, again, I want to say this. Um, Rake, you know, told me that I could have did this a long time ago. But at the time, I didn't want to do it. So I just thought it was no more chance of this and I should go on with my life. And uh, Unsung then comes out and I'm finding more people are calling me. And so I said, well, what do I want to do? So I got a call from a young guy who wanted to work with me, but he had an amazing amount of uh, things to do. And I said, well, this is what we'll do. We'll create a celebration of what radio was or what it is to people because now we're talking scott what is it like 40 years later it went by like that <laughs> <laughs> so i said let me do the radio show uh i have uh my cousin james carmichael i have Jerry rogers i even have one of the original members uh vincent bonham uh i've got a, a young drummer chris thomas uh also uh uh, Wendell Lucas, who's an excellent bass player, uh, and myself, and uh, Therese Rose, uh, Therese, because she always says, well, you said my name wrong, but anyway, Therese Rose, uh, uh, we have what I call the radio show. It is a production, uh, more so than a group, where we do the songs, but we also do Jerry Nice songs, and uh, we also can reach into Ray's catalog, like we, which is a song I love, I really wanted to be on it, didn't happen because I wasn't around, which is Ready or Not, which was written by Ray and Herbie Hancock. So yes. I get to put up, yeah, great song. So I get to put all of these songs together and promoters, uh, you know, which is the other thing too. You guys stop saying that Ray Parker sounds like that. I sound like Ray Parker. No, I sound like me, <laughs> Ray. Ray uh, gets that, so we're getting around those producer, those promoters who uh, don't know the difference. You know that they didn't see it, but then here we are now. It's like two generations later, so these people don't know. So this is that show. This is the show where you get to see it, and I and I will sing "Woman Needs Love" like it was originally intended. You know, and uh, what else? Uh, Mr. Telephone Man. Uh, that was written for me. So. I get to put those kind of songs into the system along with You Can't Help Us Say I'm Sorry. And to all of you jazz promoters, I have another song called Desert Sun that a lot of people like. It's kind of like my uh, thoughts of me on an instrument. And uh, I'll come do that, you know, as I know Carmichael. But we're going to have to say goodbye here. My, my device here, too, is saying it's too hot. You better stop. All right. 
uh, we can Scott, we can wrap it up. I, great conversation. I really uh, appreciate your 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 time, your thoughts, and great stories, man. Uh, and so glad to hear that you are back and still doing it. And um, you know, are you guys uh, busy doing a lot of rehearsing? Or all right, come here. Yeah, we're just starting our rehearsals and getting it. This is my granddaughter. I want her to say hi. Say hi, Heather. Hi. Say hi to Scott. Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Your hands are wet. Okay, go to the towel and get your wife up. So, yeah, uh, I would do this in as many times as you asked. Uh, I want you to have kind of like the exclusive to whatever's new. And, uh, you know, I'm having a great time, man, especially now having nobody standing over me. I am my own musical director. <laughs> so I don't have to listen to all of the, you better do this. <laughs> all right, well, I, I hope you come down to North Carolina soon. And yeah, I, we're working on it. We are definitely working on it. Now, you will have free tickets, Scott. You don't have to worry about that. I got you. All right, appreciate it. Well, just stand by a minute. I'm going to wrap it up, and uh, we'll get out of here. Okay. So, huge thanks again right. to, to, to my guest, Renaud Carmichael. Any final words? Uh, stay peace. Just just be cool. Just just stay relaxed. Chill out. Don't, don't let everything about it. Have a good day. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so uh, thanks again, Arnaud Carmichael, a key player of both the group radio and on radio waves of the late 1970s and early 1980s. Thank you so much again. Thank you to listeners and viewers. Uh, be sure to look out for upcoming episodes of Truth and Rhythm at funkinstuff.net and on YouTube, other leading providers. Want to hear from you? Drop me an email, scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, who else you want to see. And until next time, on behalf of Mr. Arnaud Carmichael, there he is. Peace out. <laughs> this is Scott, Dr. GX Goldfine, as always, saying keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. All right.